Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of A Good Drop. Here we are today in the recording studio, currently slurring words because we are one martini in. To our episode about martinis, so naturally we had to drink a few different varieties of martini mm. in preparation. This, this was all for you. We've, we've prepared for this. We're ready. We're about to pour another. Yeah. I'm Michael. And I'm Stu. Here we go. So, Mikkel, who'd have thought this drink with so few ingredients would be this popular, like, a hundred years on? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, from its very early inception, you, you never would have would have seen this coming. It's been around a long time, since uh, the, the 1870s is when it's considered to have first come into existence. And it, it's a funny thing, though, that Martini is a very well-known name, but to a lot of people, it's anything served in a long-stemmed V-style Martini glass. But, of course, to a purist, it is just <clears throat> just gin and vermouth. And, uh, you yeah, know, well, the modern definition of a classic Martini has now changed to gin or vodka, with a splash of vermouth and a you know garnish of an olive or a lemon twist, there's a huge number of drinks that fall under the category of martini. Mm. Yeah, in the old days, the origins of a martini were far different to what you'd expect as a, a martini today. Oh yeah, the the evolution that occurred in this drink from its humble beginnings in the 1870s in San Francisco, where a, uh, a bartender named Jerry Thomas was um, asked by a miner for the price of a gold nugget to invent him a special drink. And uh, what he created consisted of a dash of bitters, two dashes of maraschino cherry liqueur, a wine glass of vermouth, a pony of old Tom Gin, and a quarter slice of lemon. And because the miner was on his way to Martinez, California, the bartender named that drink the Martinez. So that was a very, very sweet drink back in the back in the day because cherry liqueur and even the gin that they used was a sweetened gin. Mm, and a wine glass of vermouth. That's a big drink. Yeah. A pony, for those who aren't sure, is about the same amount as a fluid ounce. 30 mils for those who use uh, metric measurements. Yeah, so it's it's a big drink. Mm. But that's I suppose a big for, for a gold nugget, that's, you know, you, you wouldn't want a shooter, would you? You'd want no. something, that, something you're going to stumble home on. I mean, that's... Mm. I suppose he paid for the rights to it as well, by the sounds of it. Well, yeah, probably. And uh, yeah, from, from those humble beginnings, of course, the drink slowly evolved and uh, eventually was listed in, um, in a number of bar manuals with uh, sweet vermouth, gin, and a dash of orange bitters. But uh, later... The Italian bartender Martini di Arma d'Italia, who worked at the Knickerbocker Hotel in New York City, claimed to have invented the drink uh, just before World War One, using equal parts dry gin and dry vermouth with orange bitters. Right. But th- there have been a number of people who've claimed ownership of the drink. Like, uh, there is another legend that claims that the Martini was named after the Martini and Henry rifle that was used by the British Army between 1870 and 1890. But that particular legend doesn't say who invented the drink. No. There's many, many different uh, theories of how the drink came about. One of one big one being uh, because it's a good portion vermouth, that 
the drink was named after martini brand vermouth. Right, so uh, apart from a, a number of uh, different theories over where the name came from, throughout the years, over time, the proportions of the drink changed as well, along with uh, with mostly the amount of vermouth being used reducing over time, to such an extent that uh, now many would consider a martini of three parts gin to one part vermouth to be a wet martini, though the modern dry... with a their thoughts of a modern dry martini being a gin to vermouth ratio of 25 to 1. Yeah. Though 25 to 1 is in fact not the ratio for an International Bartenders, Bartenders Association dry martini. No, that's uh, that's 6 to 1, I believe. That is 6 to 1, yes, according mm. to the International Bartenders Association, 6 to 1. But uh, the most recognisable form of the martini was achieved in 1922 at a ratio of two parts gin to one part vermouth, stirred in a mixing glass with ice cubes, then shaken to chill and strained into a chilled cocktail glass, then uh, garnished with either an olive or a twist of lemon peel. And that is what we are currently drinking. Now, Mm. it was also just stirred to the point of chilling, but uh, over time, of course, there has been contention about shaking martinis, and we'll come to that later. Yeah, and so from from that, of course, there are actually a lot of uh, varieties of martini. So there's um, the Gibson martini is a uh, a standard gin martini served with uh, a cocktail onion as garnish. There's a reverse martini, which is two parts vermouth to one part gin. A perfect martini, which is two parts gin to one part dry vermouth and one part sweet vermouth. And if you add orange juice to a perfect martini, it is then known as a Bronx martini. And let's not forget the kangaroo dry martini. Mm, which uh, later became known as the vodka martini. Kangaroo dry... How does that become a thing? Like, what does kangaroo have to do with it? It have to do with switching <laughs> the gin for vodka. Yeah. Right. It's it's an interesting, <laughs> an interesting idea. We're mm. going to switch gin for vodka, so that's a kangaroo. Absolutely. I mean, let's not forget the Apple Teeny made famous by Scrubs, the, mm, the, the TV show Scrubs. Though the Apple Teeny technically is not a martini. No, it has no vermouth or gin in it whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. And uh, in fact, there are many martinis that aren't martinis. The French mm. martini consists of vodka, chambord, and pineapple juice, and um, is also not a martini, but it was the first non-martini to have the martini name, and it opened the door for a number of drinks that have either martini or teeny in their name, like the apple teeny, the peach martini, the chocolate martini, or the espresso martini, which aren't actually martinis, as we've said. They take their name from the fact that they are served in a martini glass and uh, usually have no similarities to the original drink, except that many of them contain vodka, though the original martini <laughs> does not contain vodka. No, It not, contains not gin and vermouth. And uh, now there is one other type of martini <coughs> known as the Vespa martini that mm. we have not mentioned, and uh, that will come up in a moment because uh, unlike many drinks that um, gained their popularity through marketing and word of mouth, uh, the Martini is actually best known for its appearance in the James Bond franchise of books and movies by Ian Fleming. It's amazing how many times it shows up. Believe it or not, we have the stats right here, in fact. James Bond 
will drink martinis. He'll have... James Bond will have precisely 19 vodka martinis and 16 gin martinis throughout the entire set of Ian Fleming's novels and short stories. Yeah, and... Uh, the man likes to drink. He he does. And in fact, Ian Fleming was well known for his love of alcoholic drinks and cars and writing about them in mm. great detail. And uh, in fact, the very first time he mentions a martini in the franchise was in the very first Bond novel, Casino Royale, in 1953. In fact, uh, after, um, after Bond meets with CIA contact Phoenix Leiter at uh, at the Casino Royale, he approaches the bar and orders a drink, the recipe for which he provides to the bartender in uh, great detail. So, because that's actually an important recipe, I will now read an excerpt from the book Casino Royale, Chapter 7. A dry martini, he said, one in a deep champagne goblet. Oui, monsieur. Just a moment. Three measures of Gordon's, one of vodka, half a measure of quinolillette. Shake it very well until it's ice cold, then add a large thin slice of lemon peel. Got it? Certainly, monsieur. The barman seemed pleased with the idea. Gosh, that's certainly a drink, said Leiter. Bond laughed. When I'm, uh, concentrating, he explained. I never have more than one drink before dinner, but I do like that one to be very large and very strong and very cold and very well made. I hate small portions of anything, particularly when they taste bad. This drink's my own invention. I'm going to patent it when I think of a good name. And, of course, <laughs> later on, that drink would become known as the Vespa Martini, mm. named after, after the Bond the, girl. After the original Bond girl, Vespa Lind. It differs a little from Bond's usual cocktail of choice, given that it uses both gin and vodka, and uh, kina lilette instead of vermouth, and lemon peel instead of an olive. I mean, it's not quite a martini in terms of martininess, but it's very similar. It's like all the good things about a martini in the one drink. Yeah, though according to those who have made that drink by the exact specifications from the book, mm. it's a very unbalanced beverage. Ooh. And uh, has some crazy flavors. But if your purpose for consuming it is what Bond said his was... To get drunk. Then that's <laughs> really... It doesn't matter if the flavors aren't well balanced. Although Kina Lillet wasn't really... Wasn't available for a long time. But in the 1980s, it was uh, brought... Someone else decided they were going to uh, make it again into something else. It has a very uh, similar flavor to quinine. It has an, a, a similar bite and approximate flavor to Cochi Americano. And uh, they, James, you know, James Bond preferred Polish or Russian vodkas because, you know, they're much better than the rest of the world. Yeah, and um, he does, in fact, go on in that book to specify that it's best with a... Vodka based solely on potato. Hmm. No, he said it's uh, grain, made from grain instead of potatoes. Oh, grain instead of potato, that's right. Uh, telling the same barman that the vodka made from grain instead of potatoes makes the drink even better. Mm. Uh, and uh, that's in the books, but in the mm -hmm. movies, the first mention of the martini is uh, in the 1962 movie Doctor No, which was, of course, mm. the first again. 
<laughs> and uh, that's mentioned when Dr. Julius No offers James Bond a martini and asks if he'd like it shaken, not stirred. Now, yeah. um, that phrase, shaken, not stirred, is actually not said by Bond himself until the 1964 movie Goldfinger, despite the fact that it is the most well-known James Bond phrase. So well-known, in fact, that the American Film Association labelled it number 90 in the most popular uh, film quotes of all time in 2016. Mm, which, yeah, is, is not a surprise at all, because whenever you mention James Bond to anybody, their response is usually, shaken, not stirred. Right? I mean, when when you say that, all I can think of is Sean Connery saying that phrase. Mm, and, of course, he was the first in... Mm. Um, in Doctor No. In, in Goldfinger, because Goldfinger. he didn't say it in Doctor No, he said it in gotcha. Goldfinger, yes. and Goldfinger was a Connery movie. Mm. Of course, then it you know, went on to be said by you know, Roger Moore and George Lazenby and... and Timothy Dalton. Uh, who else said it? Fucking everybody. Mm. So, uh, uh, it... in the movie Casino Royale, when Daniel Craig is asked how he would like his martini, he says, do I look like I give a damn? Got to add context to that. So, he uh, lost a lot of money to Le, Ch- Le Chiffre? Le Chiffre? Uh, basically, in Casino Royale, he's playing a, a big high-stakes poker game, and he loses big time, and all, all his money is given to him by the by his boss. So By, by MI, MI6. Yeah, or by M, really. Yeah. And and yeah, he he loses big time. So at the bar after his uh, after his spectacular loss, uh, the bartender asks, oh, "How would you like your martini?" And he replies, "Do I look like I give a damn?" And yeah, I mean it makes sense. He's pissed off. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. It's yeah. James Bond was the second place I heard about a martini. First was my dad, because <laughs> he's an old Englishman and he loves his gin and he loves his vermouth. But not every Englishman loves their vermouth. Uh, I think Winston Churchill was famous for saying uh, he he likes his martini with uh, a lot of gin and waved in the general direction of Italy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, some suggest that a good dry martini has just had the vermouth bottle waved across the top of the glass. Yeah, right. So let's talk a little bit about politics because a martini is... Uh, also tied to tied a little bit to American politics because one of the big things about it is that it was uh, it became emblematic of the tax write-offs for wealthy businessmen. So, so they used to call it the three martini lunch, where CEOs and high rollers in the business world would go and have lunch and just splurge on whatever the, whatever they wanted to and. It all came to a head with this quote by uh, George McGovern in 1972 when he said, there is something fundamentally wrong with the tax system when it allows a corporate executive to deduct his $20 martini lunch while a working man cannot deduct the price of his bologna sandwich. I mean, not much has changed. Mm, No, it it remains true to this day that Mm. if you're having lunch with a business associate and discussing business, it's a working lunch, which makes it a working expense, which means Mm. you can claim it. You can claim everything that that happens there, including the three martinis and the shrimp (laughs) or or prawns or wagyu beef, as it probably is here. 
for like $56 a steak. Yes, though I wish <laughs> someone had told me that when I used to have a pint with my lunch. Right? So, uh, apparently it was quoted as the epitome... The three martini lunch was quoted as the epitome of American efficiency. I mean, where else can you get an earful, a bellyful, and a snootful at the same time? <laughs> so, it... Yeah, it was also tied as a personal insult to when people were talking about Commander Bernard Montgomery, who apparently wouldn't commit to battle without a 15-to-1 troop advantage. And So uh, they came up with the Montgomery Martini, which had a ratio of 15-to-1. 15 15 one. To one. I mean, that's very, very cutting, if you ask me. Yeah, <laughs> yes, very cutting. And of course, the Martini in, uh, in popular culture didn't really stop there. There was um, It actually became a term in the film industry as well, mm. with the, the term Martini shot used in Hollywood to refer to the final shot set up of the day. And uh, according to Dave Knox, who authored the book Strike the Baby and Kill the Blonde, which is a guide to film industry slang, the martini shot was named the martini shot because the next shot is out of a glass. Nice. I like it. It's got a ring to it. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, funnily enough, there's also a radio show in Los Angeles on KCRW that is about the film industry, and it is also called Martini Shot. Nice. So they every week they talk, or every day or so, they just talk about the film industry? They talk about the film industry. And cool. it's Martini Shot. It's, I suppose, the final the final bit of the day, just like the final shot of the day. Hmm. It's, yeah. Though, ironically, though, I suppose a martini is never just one shot. It's, at the very least, three shots. Three. Because mm, it's... Well, at least the one we're drinking is yeah. three shots. It's three shots, yeah, because we've got the traditional 1922 martini mm. with the two is to one ratio. I, I still believe that is the best martini. It's the nicest one I've had because I I actually like the taste of dry vermouth. It's it's a little bit sweet, but just a little bit. And it, it mellows out the gin so you don't get that burn that just shotting a straight spirit has. Yeah, and garnished with a twist of lemon, that slight bit of... Zest. Um, yeah, that, that slight bit of zest, that little bit of extra sourness that, mm. that the lemon peel adds to the drink really helps to balance it out. It really does. It would have to be my favourite way of drinking a martini. Mm. But if you had uh, orange bitters or even Angostura bitters, that ha- having a couple of drops of that in your martini as well really makes it sing. Yeah, just a, a splash, because there's some strong flavours, but subtle flavours balance it nicely. Hmm. Uh, so, the martini had a important role in Prohibition as well. During the... Um, during the... Pro- I can't even talk anymore. During the Prohibition days, the martini became really quite popular because it was easy to make gin in your backyard. And having it made cheaply and easily under the watchful eye of whoever decided to enforce the law uh, made the fact that you could conceal the shitty flavours with vermouth uh, quite popular among the people who were flouting the Prohibition Act. Mm, which uh, there were many. And in fact, and this is largely unrelated to uh, to any talk of martinis, but at the same time, slightly related on account of Ian Fleming's love of cars, mm. which is that uh, Prohibition... And smuggling contraband alcohols was the birth of Daytona in in the US. 
It was. The the birth of stock car racing came about from souping up cars so that they looked like regular cars but could outrun the police. Mm. I think we talked about that on a gin episode. We may have done. I and, believe we uh, did. So if you if you want to hear more about that, go tune in. Yeah, because they, they would race them against each other. Yeah. To, to see who had the fastest, and that's where that's where NASCAR came from. That's where NASCAR came from. Amazing, such interesting histories. Smuggling came. In. Yeah, smuggling, uh, being the uh, forerunner to NASCAR. What is it? What does NASCAR stand for? Do you know? Um, it's like North American, North American stock. stock car something something. Stock Car Association for Racing. I don't Maybe. know. Sounds about right. Because yeah, we, we we are not a podcast about cars, ladies and gentlemen. No, we're a podcast about alcohol. And we're also in Australia, so we know even less about NASCAR. So if you're in the US and you know what it stands for, send us an email. So yeah, as I was saying, it. Gin, sorry, not Gin, Martini was a important player in the Prohibition because not only was it popular during Prohibition, given the fact that there was cheap, shitty gin, well, it wouldn't have been cheap in those days, but low-quality gin and vermouth flying around, when the Prohibition ended, uh, because everyone was already fond of the martinis, when uh, distilleries were allowed to legally make gin again, it became super popular because suddenly the quality of the gin that they were using skyrocketed. And now everyone's, you know, drinking it today. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously it it became popular during Prohibition. People had developed a taste for it. Mm. The quality increased immeasurably after Prohibition. Yeah. So, naturally, people would go, hey, I liked this before, and now it's freaking awesome. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going to keep drinking it. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, over time, you know, things changed. People stopped wearing flapper dresses, and, you know, the 1920s ended. But the 1920s are nearly back again, so prepare. Yeah, the 20s, for, are, 20s have returned. Mm, prepare for a resurgence of the martini, because the 20s will be back. I mean, the martinis have already made a resurgence recently, anyway. Especially with this podcast, <laughs> where we're part of the new resurgence. But it's, yeah, it's quite nice, but I don't recommend it unless you feel like a strong drink, a stiff drink. Mm, it, it, it is definitely a stiff drink, not one for drinking quickly. No. And definitely not one for drinking if you're a fan of drinking games and you're drinking at a party. Apart from the fact that it's a waste of good gin and vermouth. <laughs> It's <laughs> it, it's a it's a bad idea because of the strength of it and how easily it goes down. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, the the first one kind of kicks you about a bit. The mm. after a couple of mouthfuls, it becomes very smooth. Yeah. It, well, it's it's like going back to work after a holiday. The first one is really rough. The first day is really rough, and then it gets easier. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. That that first. Mouthful or two of the martini when you're not used to drinking martinis is is a bit rough, but then it's nice. Hmm. It's very pleasant. It gets better. So uh, I haven't got anything else. And yeah, that's uh, that's it for that's a wrap for another episode of a good drop. So be sure to join us next time when we talk about Tempranillo. Tempranillo, which is one of my uh, favorite kinds of red wine. I mean, you're the wine man, so of course it's going to be good. Yes, well, I I, I do like it. I'll, awesome. I'll admit I like it. I'm I'm going to. I'm looking forward to talking about it. I'm looking forward to drinking it. I'm looking forward to drinking your wine. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, if you liked what you heard and you want to let us know, send us an email 
to a good drop podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. We are a good drop podcast. We're also on iTunes, a good drop all about alcohol. And you can find us on wherever you get your podcasts from, on your favourite podcast app. And, of course, we are on Podbean. We always appreciate new followers on Facebook or Podbean. Hmm. It makes us look good. Yeah, and it makes us uh, feel like we're making a difference. Yeah, like you you want to hear what we have to say Mm. and we're not just talking to the air because we like doing this. What's that quote? Uh, Screaming into the void. Screaming into the void, yes. Mm. Or shouting into the void. So, yeah, if you uh, also rate us on iTunes. If you think we're great, give us five stars. If you hate us, send us an email. Don't give us a one star. <laughs> yeah, send us an email with, uh, with some ideas on how we can do better. Yeah, if we can do better, let us know. So, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Mm, and, of course, tell your friends about us. Tell them to tune in to our next episode mm. about Tempranillo, especially if they like wine. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Alright, so... Uh, Until next time. Until next time. I've been Michael. And I'm Stu. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.